0: Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary Show, where ordinary heroes tell extraordinary stories during unique and never-been-heard-before conversations with your host, Hillary Arno Burns. Hillary's unique listening and way of asking questions results in conversations that aren't usually talked about, so you can create the life that you really want but are afraid you can't really have. We are demonstrating the greatness in the human spirit and creating a world where we all reclaim our birthright of joy happiness purpose and passion now here's your host hillary arno burns welcome to the getting real with hillary show and we have a very special show today But before that, before we introduce our guest, I'm going to talk about my books in case you need some summer reading. This one is called Your Bullshit is Your Blessing, How to Stop Fixing Yourself and Start Having Fun. If you try to fix yourself all the time, those days can be over and you can just start enjoying your life more. That's Your Bullshit is Your Blessing. We have Real Talk, How to Say the Things You've Never Said so You Can Have the Things You've Always Wanted. And that will be a theme for today's show. You can go to realtalkwithhillary.com and take my Real Talk quiz. And then if you really want some juicy reading, the second piece of French totes is my memoir. Just, that's all I'm going to say. No, judge, don't judge me, okay? It's real and it's courageous. Ah. All right, so now I'm going to introduce a very special guest. He is the author of the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. This is Peter Young, um, author Peter Young, and former, former spo- sports broadcaster. Welcome, Peter.
1: Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure.
0: You're welcome. I can't wait for our conversation. So if you guys want another summer read, of this one, Peter had said you won't be able to put it down. Well, that was true. I had to like I, when I read books, I don't know if everyone's like this, but I'm living, I, I was living your life and I'm like, <laughs> and I, I had to keep getting to the end to find out what, I mean, I knew what happened, but to find out how it happened. So anyway, I don't know um, how much, you know, I'd like to know more about prior to this. I mean, obviously the audience doesn't know anything, um, so, what about you? Were talking about your childhood when we were talking before. Why don't you talk a little bit about your family growing up and how what happened to you could happen to anybody? And we won't tell them what it is yet.
1: Sure. So, I grew up in a very stable two-parent home uh, in northern New Jersey, and I was the youngest of five boys. Christian home, so you know we went to church. Uh, so, a, quite a normal upbringing. Uh, we didn't talk a whole lot, but that was kind of you know of that at that era. Um, uh, I know my dad loved me, but you know, we, we didn't have a whole lot of heart to heart conversations, but that's fine. Again, you know, he would come to all my basketball games. And so Hillary, I also tell people too, that, you know, like if I can give you the reader's digest of, of me growing up, I was obsessed with basketball. So I was going to be the next Larry Bird. And then wow. I went to college and played basketball, but was not that good because <laughs> those folks you've never heard of me. So I was not the next Larry Bird. And then I got into coaching and I was going to be the next John Wooden. That didn't happen. And then I, uh, Got into sports broadcasting, and I was being the next Bob Costas, and uh, I had a good run as a sports broadcaster, traveled the world, but again, did, did not become the next Bob Costas, and that's okay. I am trying finally just to be the best me rather than be somebody else.
0: Wow, when did you find out? Like your first foray, your basketball what? When did you first realize you weren't going to be the next Larry Bird? Did someone like tell you or did you figure it out?
1: That's a very hard question to answer, but here's a funny story. So Red Arback, if you know your basketball, you know, Red Arbuck, the famous coach for the Boston Celtics. Okay, He played at George Washington University where I did a long time ago, like in the 40s. But all those years he was in Boston with the Celtics, he maintained a home in Washington, DC, which is where GW is. So he would come to like a couple games or practices every year. So the first time I met him, I'm a freshman and I go into the gym for practice to get dressed. And there he is, he'd been playing racquetball with my head coach. And my jaw drops, it's Red Arbuck, Like he drafted Larry Byrne. I'm gonna play for the guy one day, right? And uh, my coach says, Peter, this is Red Arbuck. Red, this is Peter Young. And he'd already been to a few practices and he's got his cigar but it's unlit and he doesn't say hi how are you nice to meet you he just says in that voice of his ah young you can shoot but you can't do nothing else and that's the only time i ever talked to him we never had a conversation again and unfortunately he was right that's all i could do (laughs) you were a good shooter at least i was a good shooter yes at least red said i could shoot but that's about it okay
0: wow wow well, that was, you were only a friend, you still had hope, right? Not yeah.
1: Hope? Oh, I mean, you know, I said, I'll show Red now, what does he know, right? Yeah. Oh, gosh.
0: Okay. All right. So that was college. Yep. Oh, and then what happened when you were coaching? How did you? So I coached
1: for uh, two years, one year in uh, college and one year in high school. This was when I moved out west to Colorado. And, um, you know, I, w- I was very immature. Again, I, I thought it was all about me that I was going to be this next great coach rather than, you know, a good coach makes it about his players, not about himself. And I I had to learn that. And so I, I look back, it's almost embarrassing. I was just very immature, wasn't ready to be a head coach. And so I, I, and I was flat broke. And so then I read that book, What Colors Your Parachute? It's a book that's mm. been out for years. You know, you would give it to a high school or college grad. And I said, I want to get into TV, be a broadcaster. So that's what I did.
0: Wow. And how'd you get into that? Because that's a lot of people I think would like to they don't so
1: obviously
0: you had something going for you if you could get into it right
1: yeah you know it's difficult it takes a lot of sacrifice um the sports information director at gw where i played knew everybody right so he's like well here call these people and you know i called bob costas and and marv albert and all these big names you know and and they couldn't do anything for me but um so i did community access tv you're like 50 bucks a game for about two years and then I got my first job in Pocatello, Idaho, little old Pocatello, Idaho. And I was making $14,500 a year. Wow. Yeah. But I loved it.
0: And did you do other things to pay the bills or that was it?
1: It was it. I got to raise the next year to fifteen five. dollars <laughs> So, I, you know, everybody signs a two-year contract. So, uh, And then I fell in love with Idaho. And then that's, of course, where I met my, my future wife. But, you know, boy, it was... Um, I didn't have much furniture in my apartment, let me tell you that.
0: <laughs> now, were you, when you met Paige, who I know you ended up marrying, Did were you already out of school or were you yes, still I would in have the been, school
1: then? Yeah, I would have been uh, 28 at the time. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I was in Colorado for a few years and then moved to Idaho. So, yeah, I was 28.
0: Wow, okay. So you never had another job bartending or anything while you were trying to make it. You totally. just survived on the broadcasting.
1: Wow. Well, before I got that full-time job, I had all of those jobs that you talked about. I mean, I, you know, worked in in retail sporting goods. I tried my hand at doing commercials and I, you know, I did everything. Yeah. Unloaded trucks, you name it.
0: Oh, okay. So you were, you were subsidizing your, yeah. your, your habit before you got big. And then, and then once you after, so Pocato, you had a two-year contract and then what, where'd you go after that?
1: Well, you know, then we got married and I got my dream job, which was working for the Outdoor Life Network, OLN, which became Versus, which is now NBC Sports. So it's still on cable. And, um, you know, most of the big jobs are in football, basketball and baseball. But I loved rock climbing, skiing and fishing and all that stuff. So OLN was literally my dream job. And the guy that hired me, brilliant man named Rick Lasavita, had been a producer uh, at the big time, you've done World Series, uh, Monday Night Football, uh, the Olympics. And uh, he kind of just plucked me from obscurity. And I thought, here we go. You know, I am going to be the next Bob Costas.
0: <laughs> so what happened to that? Why didn't why J- Bob Jr.?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and Rick was funny because, you know, he claimed that he kind of was the one that discovered Jim Nance, you know, when Jim was like, I think, in Utah at the time. And I was going to be the next Jim Nance. Oh, it didn't happen. But, um, you know, I loved that job, traveled a lot. The story goes, this is maybe four years in, that we were doing Alpine ski coverage. So, you know, Lindsey Vaughn, Booty Miller, all the big names, right? And um, the headquarters for Olander in Stanford, Connecticut, and all the offices up in the corner would have the TV going on 24-7. So they're having a big meeting with all the big wigs. And somebody says, wow, they're doing a great job with the World Cup ski coverage this year. So the meeting stops, you know, the CEO turns up the volume and then they all listen. And he says, well, who's doing the play-by-play? And somebody says, well, it's Peter Young. And he says, well, who's Peter Young? Because that's red flag number one, the guy did yeah. who it was. And then everybody looked around and was like, well, he's one of our main play-by-play guys. And then he says, well, his voice is flat. So that was about a year before my contract was up. So I didn't get my contract renewed. So then I thought, well, I was still arrogant, still cocky. You know, I needed to be kind of knocked off my pedestal. And I thought, well, until ESPN calls, I'll, I'll sell real estate. And and I joked that ESPN did call, but about eight years later. So I, my career kind of died on the vine.
0: What happened when they called? Did, did you go with them after eight years?
1: I did, but it was just part-time. So it was ESPN oh. 3. So I did ESPN 3 and I think oh. one or two games for ESPN 2 um okay just on a per game basis but it was great it's fun oh
0: so reading the book I thought you were in broadcasting for a lot longer so was that just six years or is my math wrong
1: well no see I would have been two years at the ABC affiliate in Pocatello about five or so with OLN and then freelance you know full-time freelance for about two and then part-time you know with okay. with ESPN three and others for another good okay. 10 years yeah okay all right
0: so you were still doing that okay Yeah. All right. Cool. So then, well, all right. So then you went into real estate and that was good and that was bad and yep. Yep. had its moment. Okay. Yep. All right. So do we want
1: to, Let's dive in. <laughs> want to
0: talk about Paige yet?
1: <laughs> so, you know, I, uh, I moved to little old Idaho and I thought, well, I'm not going to meet anybody here. You know, I was single, wanted to get married. And, uh, you know, Paige was like six foot one, tall, blonde. She's beautiful. And I was always attracted to tall women. And I would see her around Pocatello, didn't know who she was. And uh, seen her at a game, seen her at the church I was going to, but hadn't been introduced to her. So the pastor of the church starts a little singles Bible study, which is of course, that's why you go, right? Is to meet somebody. So I met her at the singles Bible study. And um, boy, we started dating like a week or two after that. And I was 90% sure Hillary, that I want to marry this woman after, let's say, maybe 10 days, two weeks of dating. And the other 10 percent, the doubts, if you will, were I needed to meet her father and this Uncle Robert guy because she talked about him all the time. And I thought, well, if I marry her, they're going to have a big role in my life. So I got to know who these guys are.
0: Mm. Now, how did you know? All right. So here's a question I have for you. Well, maybe I should ask it later. All right. I'll, I'll ask it now. Um, How much, and this is as a woman, okay. Maybe a man would go, well, that's a stupid question, but for a woman, it's like you always referred to her as your beautiful wife. Mm -hmm. I had a beautiful wife. Now how much did that beauty maybe blind you to some of the stuff that we'll talk about later? Like if she had not been so beautiful would you have maybe not put up with it not gone along with it and again we can answer this later if it makes more sense later but but that was always you know that's always a flag when someone says "And my beautiful white i'm like why why does that matter so i mean i know it does because you want to be attracted to the person but but what if someone's not
1: right well <laughs> good question fair certainly a fair <laughs> question And I would say for me, it was not just, you know, physical beauty. I loved everything about this woman. She was beautiful on the inside and out. I know that's a cliche, but for me, that was true because we had so much in common. I believe that she was a Christian as I believe I was. We loved the outdoors. We loved fitness. We loved family. I mean, like she checked all the boxes and yes, she was physically attractive. But again, it was everything about her was beautiful to me. Okay.
0: So it was more than just the physical
1: yeah okay
0: and you knew after 10 days that you had that much in common and all that stuff Yep.
1: and I'd never felt that way towards another woman before I had a you know a long-term relationship in college and maybe a few after that but I had never felt this way towards a person ever before
0: okay okay all right so you so so when did you get to meet the father and the um the uncle yeah
1: so I met the, so we, Paige and I met, let's say late October 1996. And then I got to meet the father around Thanksgiving. So about a month later. And, um, you know, it seemed like a nice enough guy. Although, as I talk about in the book, there were some odd moments. The oddest one was I just got there. So I had to go to the bathroom. So I go down the hall, use the, uh, you know, the hall bathroom. And I'm a guy. So I stand to go pee. And, uh, you know, I finish, flush, wash my hands, and I come out. And as soon as I open the door, the father, the future father in law, right, is standing right there. And he always had hearing that wasn't so good. So he always standing really close. So I opened the door. There he is. And he says, um, "You know, I heard you standing up to pee. And in our house, the men sit down to pee. All right, that was weird enough. But he says, um, Uncle Robert taught us that. And I would hear that phrase over and over again throughout the years. So it's the first time I'd ever heard it. Uncle Robert taught us that. So yeah, Uncle Robert was such a presence in their lives, in my future in-laws and Paige, that he, Taught the man how to pee and lots of other things. (laughs) So, yeah, that was weird.
0: So, okay. So, so it's weird. Do you say anything?
1: No. (laughs) I just, I just kind of nodded. So, okay. Didn't say anything. I don't remember if I said anything to Paige. There was another odd moment on that, at that same time where, you know, as a Christian, you share your testimony, how you became a Christian, what the Lord has done for you. And so, uh, Jack shared his, this is maybe the next day. And then uh, the mother shared hers, which was really bizarre. And then uh, Paige kind of shared hers. And, and the irony is that, that years later, everybody's testimony would have been changed by Uncle Robert because he convinced everybody we weren't Christian until you went through him. So we had that meeting. And then Jack asked me, would you be willing to share yours? And I said no, because it was so weird in that moment sitting there with you know, Paige and these, these two of the people. And there was another friend there. And it just sounded bizarre. And um, I said no. So you know, even with these weird moments, uh, there was nothing there about Paige's parents. I thought, well, you know, I'm still in love with this woman. So yeah. I just said, well, the next thing to do is meet Uncle Robert, who was not blood related. He was not an uncle. Right. Um, you can't tell. I'm six foot five, but you know, I I used to have blonde hair when it wasn't gray and then turned brown. And Paige's family, you know, typical Northern European looks blue blue eyes, blonde hair. Uncle Robert was born and raised in Syria. So jet black hair, bald head, olive complexion, bulbous nose, short, overweight. He was called uncle because Paige's parents required their kids to you know, say that to adults as a sign of respect, but really with Uncle Robert, it stuck, he was always called that. And he was always in this position of authority because he kind of glommed on to Paige's parents before Paige was ever born. That was early 1970s.
0: And do you know how that happened? How he, like, how he infiltrated their family before sure. paid, before the kids were born? Like, yeah, so, did he have other families too? Like, why them?
1: Yeah, good you know? question. And that's the question everybody asks, were there other families? And the short answer is not really. So his name is Robert Booty. He came to America, I don't know, late 60s, early 70s, uh, met a woman from the South, thing from Tennessee, they got married. And so they, he went to a very small seminary in Fresno, California, where he met Jack and Kathy. So Jack and Kathy had one child, that'd be Paige's older brother. And uh, so that's where they met. They met at this tiny little seminary. Jack did not graduate. They did the, the um, administration of the school wouldn't even, you know, give him his, his diploma, I guess. And Robert Booty you know why. Yeah, um, you know, he was a very unstable person, I guess, at the time. Very ripe for someone like Robert Booty to kind of come on in and have this very dominant relationship. Mm. And uh, he was, Jack was kind of, you know, not I guess maybe not very respectful uh, to the administration, and they just kind of Mm. just were uncomfortable saying, "Yeah, sure, here's your degree. Now go speak at a church." They just didn't think that was a good idea for this guy to do that. Right. And then, of course, Robert Booty's. Uh, you know, seminars, you know, this is how he's going to graduate, was on the learned elders, uh, the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, which was that, you know, famous anti-Semitic forgery from the early part of the 20th century that basically said that the Jews were out to take over the world. And so that's what he did his senior seminar on or his thesis on. And he had this famous line that, because you know, people would say, well, come on, this has been proven to be a forgery. And his line was, well, who cares if it's fake if everything he talks about is coming to fruition? So amazingly, they they actually did graduate him. And I don't know if he ever went on to pastor a church or not, but he stayed in California. And then the Clausens, you know, kind of retreated to the hinterlands of interior British Columbia, Canada. And that's where Page was, you know, born and raised.
0: Okay, so he so he stayed in but they stayed in touch, obviously. Yeah.
1: Yep, yep. On the phone a lot and they would visit each other you know once or twice a year
0: do you think he had his hold over them at that point or they oh were no just questions
1: managed? yeah no question well, we did. Um, oh yeah uh, i would say probably very shortly after they met you know his I, I don't think his personality really would have changed or evolved much over those years he is who he is and uh he's he's very charismatic uh he's at times brilliant. Uh, also narcissistic, but he's got a very strong working knowledge of psychology. So he he's very good at you know manipulating people, and so he would have manipulated Paige's parents from the get go.
0: And what was his like? Why was it for the money? Was it for the control? Like what? What do you think his um, motivation was? you know had he done it before I mean you know what I mean like it's just so odd that it would just happen to be them well obviously and then you got it wouldn't have been odd if you hadn't gotten involved but it just would have happened but you know like what what do you think motivated him to become that
1: I get that question almost every time uh I, I discuss this and um Here's my take on it because, you know, we would all tithe to him. So again, in Christianity, the tithing is you give 10% back uh, to the Lord as a way of saying thank you, right? It's all a gift from God. So you usually give it to your church or, or other Christian organizations. And so over the years, we eventually, so we as in Paige and I, her parents, and then her older brother, uh, who was also in on the little cult. And then there's one or two other guys on the fringe here or there. So we all tithe, but none of us made a ton of money. So I don't think he was really in it for the money, more so the control. I mean, Hillary, if you had people that just idolized you and talked well about you all the time and you knew that you had this control over them, it takes a very strong person to not really enjoy that and like it and then you know, milk it and want to keep it going. And So he loved uh, the power, the authority, the attention, and the control he had over everybody. So to me, that's the why.
0: What, what, but did you think it was odd that you were tithing to him instead of to the actual church?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't I don't necessarily think, you know, you actually have to tithe to a church. There's all kind of Christian organizations you can okay. tithe to. You can right. tithe so, to your Christian neighbor who's broke, right? Who needs okay. the money. Yeah. But clearly, you know, it was odd that, you know, a few years into our marriage, you know, we would tithe a little bit to him and to some other places. But eventually, it all went to go him, all went to him. And not only that was a little weird, but also, you know, the idea of, well, it has to go to him. Like, and if you don't send it all to him, because everybody else was. So if me, you know, I thought, well, honey, why don't we send some other money over here? That was not allowed. That to me was the the hard part to swallow. Uh, It all had to go to him. You know, his wife had a good job. She was a nurse, so they had two sons. And then after that, she, had a, she was a, a nurse and she was a supervisor for nurses at a hospital. So she made a pretty good living. And he never had a job as far as I know. I never saw him gainfully employed. But what he said to his wife, was Uncle Robert, what he said to her uh, when he proposed to her, I guess, around that time, is that he would be her mission field. In other words, she'd make the money and support him. And that's what they did for years.
0: And she didn't mind. Or you apparently know? not.
1: Yeah, apparently not.
0: Wow. Right. Hey, whatever yeah. works. Okay. Yeah. So you're going along, you're tithing to them, and you're. I know you had a bunch of kids, and you know Naomi had. Right? Is Naomi fine now?
1: Yes, I mean she uh, she did have a lot of health issues. She was born with hydrocephaly, but. um you know, 200 years ago, she wouldn't have lived, but now with modern medicine, right. yeah, she's fine.
0: And the diabetes, she's fine.
1: Yep. Yep. Still has that again with modern medicine. It's, it's incredible, but it's all,
0: yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So when you read the book, you can read about Naomi's birth. They had five children and, you know, some were uneventful, some were eventful, but obviously, obviously you made it through and all that. Yep. And And there's, um, some things that go along with that, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> was so
0: fault and why and all that, right?
1: So yeah, we had, yeah we had five kids, and if I could, so I can tell this story, you know. So yeah, the first one was in the hospital, was fine, um, and then the last three were home births. So you know, I caught Naomi, uh, I caught Alex, and then I caught Zoe. Like literally, like I was able to catch it. It was amazing. But with our second child, um, he was born uh, eight weeks premature. Paige went into the hospital and bed rest 26 weeks, leaking amniotic fluid. Of course, the doctors didn't know why this was happening, right? But when we went into the hospital, his life was in danger. He could have died. She might have had to deliver right away via C-section, might not have made it. As it is, when he was in the ICU, um, he nearly died a couple of times. His lungs were underdeveloped. But this was a crucial moment for Paige, for our marriage, and for the whole, let's say, viability of the cult. Because- Paige's younger sister had said at the time, I don't think this Uncle Robert guy is who he says he is. I think he's a fraud. I think he's a danger to our family. I don't think we should have anything to do with him. And uh, temporarily, Paige and her parents believed her younger sister. And so then Paige, shortly after that, goes into the hospital and bed rest, And she became convinced that the Lord punished her for temporarily believing her sister and her supposed lies about Uncle Robert. And so because she had not stood up for Uncle Robert and defended his good name, that the Lord was gonna kill our unborn son, put her in the hospital and put his life in danger. She was convinced of it. And then with tears, apologized to Uncle Robert, who of course you know, said, oh yeah, I'm sure that's the case. You know, soaked up the adulation. And so from then on, this would have been the year 2000. So again, this is just our second child. The devotion to him was even stronger than it ever was before you know here it was that she just thought a little bit of doubt about this man that mm, maybe my sister's right maybe he's not who he says he is and just by doing that the lord almost killed our unborn son and put her in the hospital which of course to me is nonsense did not happen but she believed it but did he plant that that thought
0: in her or did she come up with that herself
1: well it's kind of like what comes first the chicken or the egg he did not come up with that it's not like he called her in the hospital well you know Paige, here's why you're here no she would have thought that but of course okay. she's now mid-20s she has been under his domination and thought control and mind control her whole life well mm. of course she's going to come to that conclusion yeah it was awful
0: you could you could have been saved right then if she had kept going with the doubt right <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, and and I remember she talked to me about it briefly, and I didn't really know the full story of this until I read a letter she wrote, a confession she wrote, typed it up on a computer disk. I found it in a box like 20 years later, and I read it. And I knew a little bit at the time. I thought, well, this is kind of weird. Like, really? Like, our son almost died because of Uncle Robert? I don't get it. And then I read the letter and how distraught she was and how convinced that this was the Lord's punishment on her, which is just not biblical, number one. But number two, just, just not. I don't see it. It was crazy. So oh, so
0: okay. So you only know this now. You didn't know at the time that this, that this was going on with her. I knew,
1: par- I knew portions of it. Yeah. So I, I knew m- much of it, but not all of it. There's a lot that after Paige left me, you know, my, you know, twenty years into our marriage. There's a lot of stuff that finally the Lord opened my eyes and ears to all this, that I really wasn't totally blind, but partially blind to it. And so, and you know, she didn't want to share a lot of this either because she could tell at the time I had doubts about Uncle Robert. You know, I wasn't completely sold on him. She was. I wasn't. So when it came to our second son, you know, she's in the hospital and he nearly died. She shared some of it with me, but not all of it. Which was a theme, Hillary, too. Whenever there was something on her heart, really serious, really important, that she had to share, she shared it with him first, not me. Mm. And that was for our entire marriage.
0: Well, obvious. You're going to go, what? That's crazy. Whereas he's going to do his mind control. Oh, you know what I mean? So she, yep. even though she was being manipulated, he was validating her craziness. Yep. Whereas you would have questioned it. So, you know.
1: And I didn't question it too much. To,
0: But if she could have listened to you, yeah. but she couldn't. It was like she had to choose.
1: Yeah. She had a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? Do I believe yeah. my husband or do I believe Uncle Robert? Because... A year later, there really was a moment where I finally stood up and I should have followed through, but I didn't. And again, I talk about it in the book, but it has to do with 9-11. Okay. So my son is born in the summer of 2000 and he's, and he was turned into a division one athlete. So he's fine. He was a great kid. He's healthy. He's a stud. Okay. So then a year later, we're at our, one of our little conferences in Idaho at Paige's parents' house and uncle Robert's there. And I knew nothing about, you know, him going to the seminary and his anti-Semitic Views. I had no idea. So we've been married now four years. And again, you know, he's odd, he's weird, but I didn't know this. So we start talking about 9 11. And then he says, well, 80,000 people died on that day. I thought, I didn't think it was that many. And then he starts going on about how President Roosevelt was a Jew and Truman was a Jew. And he said the word Jew was such vitriol. Now, uh, so again, talking about the book, I grew up in a Jersey in a melting pot. So I had Jewish friends, Catholic friends, Christian friends. I had you know, Italians and Greeks, Polish and this, that. We all kind of made fun of each other, right? And nobody yeah. has no big deal, right? You could do that back then. But when he said this, there was such venom in his voice. I was quite frankly scared. And I remember telling Paige that night, I thought, I don't think we should have anything to do with this guy. Like now I was really... Just like her younger sister, who by this point had been banished, completely shunned. I thought, I you know, this guy is wow, I didn't realize this about what what he thought about Jews. Paige was concerned and, you know, nodded, but didn't really say anything. And then I never followed up. I never followed through, hey, honey, what what are we gonna do about this? Now, maybe I didn't follow up, and I didn't say much because Paige's younger sister, the one who brought the accusations against Uncle Robert, and then the, the two other younger brothers, younger than, than Paige, were at this point now completely vilified. So the sister and the two brothers, who all felt, mm, this Uncle Robert guy, we don't want anything to do with them. Paige and her parents completely cut them off. We weren't allowed to say the younger sister's name. She was now the redhead because we didn't want any of our kids to even know she existed. Any pictures on the wall or in photo albums that had her took them down. It was that bad.
0: So you're afraid they would do that to you?
1: Yeah, no question. In the back of my mind, I may not have known that right away because I thought we had the best marriage ever. I loved this woman. I thought we had such a wonderful relationship that nothing would ever go wrong. In the back of my mind, I knew, hmm, what would it look like to me if uh, it came down to it where I said, no, we, we can't have anything to do with this guy. What would Paige do? What would her parents do? Eventually did.
0: Mm. At the the early point, and I know we have to take our break, but all right, all right, I'll just ask. If you had said we're not going to have anything to do with it, do you think early on she would have gone with you?
1: That's the million dollar question. And I have come to the conclusion now after so many years of thinking about this, uh, you know, we got married, what was it, 26 years ago, 25 years ago. That as long as Uncle Robert had his position in her life, in her mind, his position of authority and dominance and reverence, that our marriage was doomed to failure. Mm-hmm. As long as he had that position in her life, it was doomed. If I had stood up in 2001 and said, no, we're not going to have anything to do with this guy, would she have left me right then? I don't think so, but probably eventually.
0: Even if she had no contact with him, so he couldn't do his thing in her brain, like if you just stopped having it, I mean, then she would have had to stop doing anything with her parents too, but
1: I don't think she would have been able to do it because as you say, because her whole life was
0: about the approval. Yeah. She would have had to be done with
1: him, done with her parents. And I just don't think she would have done that. I don't think she would have been willing to do that for me in our marriage.
0: Wow. Okay. All right. More to come. Let me just hold up Peter's book again. If you're getting, I know we're not talking about the whole story because I want you to get some when you read it. Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger by Peter Young. More to come after this commercial break from our sponsors. Has social-emotional learning become just one more thing on your teacher's plates? Do teachers and students both find it boring and ineffective? Then bring Kikori to your school. Kikori transforms classrooms through experiential SEL activities that help students play, reflect, connect, and grow. Even better, students say it's more fun than recess. Schedule a no-obligation conversation at kikoriapp.com slash bringkikori. K-I-K-L-R-I. Do you ever feel like you can't say what you really wanna say? Or that you're stuck or in a holding pattern in your relationships, career, personal life or finances? Are there things you want in life that you've given up on? Are you resigned that this is as good as it's going to get? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Hilary Burns, host of the Getting Real with Hillary Show has the solution you need. Hillary is a published author of three books and has a program called The Getting Real Process. This process frees you from what is holding you back, allowing you to create a life you love. Don't believe it? It is hard to believe that it could work, isn't it? The proof is that hundreds of Hillary's clients have used The Getting Real Process and are now free to create whatever they want in relationships, career, finances, enjoying life, or just loving themselves more. So go to realtalkwithhillary.com and order Hillary's book, Real Talk, and set up a conversation. Welcome back, and thank you to our sponsor, Kikori. Go to Kokoriapp.com if you want to bring more social emotional learning to your child's classrooms, or if you're the teacher to your classrooms. It's my my daughter worked for that company, and it's truly can make a huge difference for our children, their socialization and their connecting. And then to me as the sponsor with Real Talk, if you don't think you speak up. And that's one of the things we're talking about today. Go to realtalkwithhilary.com and take my quiz. If you're surprised at your score, let's chat because I'll tell you what, as Peter and I were saying, uh, what does he say? The hard choice, Tim Ferriss has a quote. What's that quote by Tim Ferriss?
1: Hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. In other words, the difficult conversations we should be having with people. If you don't have them, your life will be harder. But if you have those difficult conversations, life will be easier.
0: Right. And that's what the Getting Real process is all about, is teaching us to do that, taking a look at your life and seeing what's real, what's not, what can we keep, what can we let go of, and really creating what you want instead of what you're stuck with. So back to Peter, um, PeterYoung.com. I'll just show you his website in case you want to see if it's here. Here it is peter young he has two books out author of the blue team and stop the tall man save the tiger and uh oh it's author that's the website but we'll be talking more about that very nice and back to our conversation so okay <laughs> all right so what do you well do you think um Obviously, people will need to read your book to get the whole story. Um, I think we can say now that it was a cult. It took you until you got out of it to see that this was a mind control and a cult, right? Um, did you did you ever think it was before that time? I mean, I know you know towards the end you're still trying to, you know, I, I would just say make it with him, make it with Paige, have her change her mind you know, you were into that. Did you ever stop to think, whoa, something's wrong here and I got to get myself out of here or not until everything, you know, you realized it wasn't going down the way you wanted?
1: Yeah, another great question. So I I say, and it's on the back of the book, you never know you are in a cult. You only know you were in one. So no one ever joins a cult. They think they're joining something else, uh, you know, a self-betterment group, uh, you know, fellowship with other Christians, whatever it is. No one ever thinks they join a cult. So in the years preceding or leading up to uh, when I was actually brainwashed. So I was, again, I was married for about 20 years. I would say I was brainwashed for maybe two to three years, like fully in, like all in. Uncle Robert could do no wrong. Uh, but prior to that, I had a lot of doubts. Absolutely. Did I ever think, boy, this is a cult? Not really. Did I think it was weird? You bet. A lot. <laughs> But it was very slow, very subtle. I was a proverbial frog in the pot of boiling water. And I eventually got boiled and worn down, eroded, worn out to then to the point where I thought, well, maybe I've been missing it all these years, right? Like maybe my wife was right. Maybe Uncle Robert was right. And I was the dummy for asking all these questions. Like, really? The Jews are trying to take over the world? Like, do you have any evidence of this? And then finally, I thought, oh, I you know, I, oh, she's brilliant and, and I'm wrong and he's brilliant. I've been wrong all these years. So it was a long process, but to answer your question more specifically, did I really know it was a cult? Not until afterwards. To where I could say, okay. yep, it was.
0: Okay. And when you say two to three years out of the 20, were those the last two to three when you thought, okay, if I just accept this, you know, she'll stay with me and Uncle Robert will love me and I'll be one of the good guys. Like, like, is that how instead of the that's whole, I'll be in with the with them. Like, is that what you were trying to do, do you think? Like, by, by, you know, I know you kept trying to get saved. I'll try it again, and I'll try it again, right? Is that is that why? Because you wanted Paige to stay? Is that what you think?
1: There's certainly that part was- of it. There's no question. There was no question that was one of the underlying, if one of the primary motivations was to save my marriage, to save my family. And so, you know, one of the worst things that cult leaders do, in my opinion, is they try and act as a gatekeeper to God. So again, now I don't know how much of your audience is is Christian, but in Christianity, salvation is a free gift. You don't have to earn it. Uh, And no man can give it to you. So you don't need man's approval. But Uncle Robert taught that you kind of needed to go through him first. Kind of like if the tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, it doesn't make a sound. Well, if somebody gets saved without Uncle Robert, does it really count we a little cold. It was like, I guess not. So I finally got worn down in a road and said, okay, well, I'll, I must not be a Christian. And I allowed him to quote-unquote save, me, which I look back now and it's fraudulent and wicked. But that started that process of, oh, I was wrong all these years. You know, Why did I resist? And that was, again, you know, a two to three year process. It was awful. So
0: you, So you really and you really believed it for those two years that he, that you had to go through him.
1: Yeah. You know, and I still had a lot of doubts. I mean, I really questioned, I was really going through an incredible mental and emotional, spiritual turmoil, which again is not an accident. That's what cult leaders do. They right. make you a mess up here. They scramble it and then they come in with the cure. Right. So now they're seen as even more uh, God-like and uh, higher up on the pedestal. So I still had doubts, I still had questions, I was still really struggling. But I guess the key is I felt like he was the key. He knew, he knew why I was doubting. And if I've just listened a little bit better, a little bit closer, he'd make those doubts go away. Which of course, it was the exact opposite. He was and never going make those doubts go away.
0: Right, and is that because he had messed you up so bad (laughs) you know with all the insults and all the you know telling you how wrong you were and you were the problem and you know Paige was making up all that crap that wasn't true and you know do you think like you get worn down after the mental verbal abuse then you're you're so broken down that he's the one that can save you like i know you spent hours on the phone with him even when she was done and you know what i mean like do you think that's why you needed his approval so bad because i because i could relate i mean i've gotten in you know you know not not proud moments but you know where i'm so needy or pathetic and holding on to you know i was telling you about that guy before we started who was who you know i don't know if he was a narcissist but they love bomb you they 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 build you up, and then they start destroying you, and then they discard you. And at that point, you're so like I. I was so like, you know, holding on for dear life and doing things that, where am I doing that? Like it made no sense, but I. It was like I couldn't help it. You know, I was so, wait, you know, you can't leave. You know, and I. It, it was weird. It was weird. Now I still can feel that. You know that 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 stress of it all, trying to hold on to something that wasn't coming back. And, it, and I wonder if that was kind of the mechanism, like break you down, insult you, and now you're holding on for dear life, trying to get saved so you can say, you know, you know, like if you're in your right mind, you'd be like, this guy's an idiot, but you're not in your right mind. And, and, and I wonder, how would they know to do that? Do you know what I mean? Like where did someone learn how to... You know, excuse my language, but fuck us up so bad. <laughs> we're so
1: nuts. Yeah, I, you know? I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I don't think there's a school for that, uh, Hillary. I do, I don't think there's a degree for that. But there was a number of things that happened, and it was, it was the perfect storm. So number one would be yeah. you know, again, this was very subtle. Took years to accomplish. It wasn't overnight. Uh, then number two, we were very isolated. So I had kind of really stopped. Honestly, communicating with my family, with my parents, with my brothers, with other family, uh, with other, let's say, believers and church growers in our area. So his was really the only voice I would have heard, his, page and Paige's parents. So there were no other voices of authority in my life other than the ones that are telling me I'm the devil. Literally, I'm the devil. I'm demon-possessed. I'm Satan. They're all telling me this. And so, so yeah. now I've been hearing this for a long time. I'm completely isolated. And and yeah, I'm desperately trying to save my marriage, thinking that somehow this guy is going to be able to, to turn it around, to right the ship. The Titanic is going to miss the iceberg and we're going to get home safely. <laughs> and that's not the case. <laughs> we ran right into the iceberg. <laughs> wow.
0: And what... I mean, do you think that until you were ready, until you knew Paige wasn't coming back, that if anybody had said, hey, Peter, come on, you know, you've isolated yourself. Let me help you. Would you would you have been able to hear it? Like, I'm just thinking if someone else has someone in this position, would you have been able to or you would have
1: just. So the fascinating thing is, even though I was only brainwashed for, let's say, again, two to three years. Uh, I didn't tell my family for four months that my wife had left me. So we lived in Montana, and my family is on the coast, east and west. So nobody knew for four months because, of course, Paige told me not to tell anybody. So I didn't tell anybody in Montana. I didn't tell my family. Finally reached out four months later, told my family. They, of course, immediately rallied around me to support me. They were stunned. They were saddened. They felt bad for me. And I told them all. I said, listen, I just need your support. Please don't say anything bad about Paige or Uncle Robert. I didn't want to hear it. And I couldn't. So then after about a month or two of talking to my brothers on the phone and my parents and telling them and starting to fill them in. Oh, yeah. You know, they thought casinos were places of worship. Huh? Yeah. He taught, you know, Jews are taking over the world. Really? You know, They didn't know all this. So one of my brothers, I started sharing emails I was getting from Paige and Uncle Robert because they would send me into a tailspin. They were so bad. Many of them are in the book. And my one brother said, you know, Peter, I'm sorry, but what she's doing is egregious. I can't believe she's doing this. And I was stunned. Now, anybody would read these emails and see this is beyond egregious. It's horrendous. But I still didn't see it. And this is a good now five months after she's left me. And I was still like, how could anybody say that? How could anybody say that Paige and Uncle Robert are wrong? I still didn't see it. It took me a full year to finally see that's wicked. That's wrong. When, you know, Uncle Robert would say something. It took a year.
0: And 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 why? Because you had been so embedded in it that you couldn't see out. It was you were so used to it. Yep. Right?
1: I wow! I was brainwashed. And and, and Stephen Hassan wrote a great book called "Combating Cult Mind Control." He's kind of one of the the cult experts in America. And somebody sent me the book anonymously, and I thought, oh, I wasn't in a cult. I don't need to read this. It sat on my bookshelf for a year. I finally read it, and you know, my jaw dropped. I underlined like. You know, half the book, because it was exactly what I experienced. And um, it's what he talks about. He says, listen, cults can look different, right? They come in all shapes and sizes. But at their foundation, at their core, cults are all about mind control, undue mind control. So, you know, positive mind control would be a loving parent, a coach, right? A mentor. Undue mind control is the guru um, that dominates you, that puts you under his thumb in any number of ways.
0: Wow. And it's so, would you say it's subtle so that you don't know it's like the frog in the boiling water, right? You don't even know what's happening.
1: And the reason why I say you don't know you're in a cult, you only know you were in one, is because the moment you know in your head that, oh my goodness, I'm in a cult, then that's the first moment that your mind has now come to the realization there's something wrong here. Now you're still in the cult, you know what I'm saying? But the mm. moment you're able to say, Oh, I'm in a cult, uh, now you've you're on the road to getting out. Because anybody who's really in it would never say, Yeah, this is a cult. I'm in a cult. They yeah. would say, no, 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 it's not a cult. We're different, we're special.
0: Right. But you did have doubts all those years. Yep. But somehow he wore you down. Yep. Yep. Somehow they so, wore you down. And-
1: and I would say this too, you know, I, 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 the phrase I always use is I went along to get along with my wife. I loved my wife. I love family. Family's important to me. I never wanted to have my marriage end. Um, so without being married to Paige, if I were to just meet Robert Booty, you know, at a conference, a little church or whatever it is, um, I would never have gone along with him. I never would have right. listened to him for years. I thought, oh, my gosh, this guy is a crackpot. But right. my wife listened to him, and so I gave him the benefit of the doubt.
0: And what about your kids? Are they out of it with you?
1: Yeah. So the so we have five. So the the two youngest have graduated from college. I will just say this: it's it's um, a bit of a work in progress. Um, our relationship has been strained because of all this. The kids were taught by their mother and by Uncle Robert to hate me. So I was the devil sperm donor a bloodline my attorney and we had a guardian litem involved said this was the worst case of parental alienation they'd ever seen with the goal that you know the kids would then see me not as their father not as their dad but as a friend maybe a little bit more than a bloodline and a sperm donor but just a friend so that then i would abdicate my role as father and guess who would take over uncle robert would now be their dad because for several years Paige's father didn't call him Uncle Robert. He called him Dad.
0: Oh my! So that's
1: another feature of the cult where everybody, you know, multiple generations of people. So Paige's parents, then Paige and I, and then our kids would look to the cult leader as their dad. So I would no longer be dad. So anyway, the, our relationship was very strained. The three youngest ones get it. They still love their mother as they should. They all do. Uh, but they now see the, the wickedness of what Booty was teaching. Well, that's good.
0: Was it ever, I know I'm sure people ask you, was it ever sexual between them, or don't you know?
1: Well it wasn't I don't think so. And I, you know, I we homeschooled our kids, so we were around them all the time. I I don't think there was ever a moment where he was really alone with them. So were there were there weird moments, inappropriate moments? Yeah. Sexual, no, illegal, no. Just weird. Just
0: mind. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, it's Congratulations on getting out, you know? She did you a favor as much as you didn't like it, right? I mean, she really did you a favor and hopefully you can help others who are, who don't know they're in that situation, right?
1: You know, why go through tough times in life if you can't learn from them and share your experiences with others, right? So there's a story in the Bible where there's this guy has all these demons and they call themselves legion because there's so many. And so Christ heals the guy. And the guy's like, can I follow you? And Jesus says, no, go home and tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. So he does. Well, that's why I look at my life. Like, I wish I could have learned these lessons differently. I wish I didn't have to go through so much pain. It was awful. It was very painful. But I'm a million times stronger now. I don't look to the family guru for advice or confirmation for my every single thought and deed. I don't look to a spouse who's doubting me for confirmation of every single thing I do. The Lord has given me strength and wisdom. So now I use my story and my journey to, just like this, try and help warn people and use it as a cautionary tale of what could happen. Because again, I know I don't, I think I don't look like the type that would get sucked into a cult, but it could happen to anybody. It really can.
0: Mm. And do you have any advice? I, I know for the people who are getting sucked in, they probably don't think they need advice. Right. But do you have any advice for someone watching someone? Is there anything they can do?
1: Yeah, the advice. I only got,
0: for... got one minute.
1: <laughs> so... Sure. The, the advice, Hillary, is for the friends and the family. And so don't allow people to isolate themselves maintain strong fellowship and communication ask good questions and you've got to reach out to that person because that person will not reach out to you you got to make the first step be loving be patient but stay in communication Wow.
0: Thank you, Peter. This was so, Mm. it's just so fascinating. And I just appreciate your generosity and and willingness to share about obviously a difficult time. So thank you. And again, if you want to read Peter's book, I recommend it highly. Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger by Peter Young. Go to authorpeteryoung.com or they can go to Amazon and find it.
1: Correct, you can just go straight to Amazon or my website, yep.
0: Yeah, I recommend it. If you have any doubts, can they can they reach out to you on your website or anything? Oh,
1: sure. You know, and I love to speak publicly as well. I gave a talk just the other night. So you can go into my website and you can contact me. I would right. love to come, whether it's a church or rotary or some other group, happy to do it.
0: And here's his contact. I guess you can just yep. contact him. And there you go. There you go. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. This has been so great, and you know, any, any last final words you want to say? Uh,
1: you know, people say that my book is hard to put down, and it's either you know you can't put it down, or you have to put it down to take a break before you pick it back up again. I love reading books that are page turners. I think my story is a page turner, and I think it's an important one. So I do encourage you to to pick it up and read it.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter, author Peter Young.
1: Thank you, Hillary.